Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, reshape your eyes and celebrate Copyright Week. But first up, here's the news. Microscopic Windmills Professor Chow and Smitha Rao from the University of Texas Arlington have developed micro windmills that are only 1.8 millimeters across. To give you an idea of just how small that is, 10 of them could fit on a grain of rice. The micro windmills will be manufactured by Taiwanese company Windmems, who make micro electromechanical systems. The tiny turbines are electroplated from nickel alloys to be extremely durable and generate power in slight breezes or strong winds. Using Windmem's fabrication techniques, an array of thousands of micro windmills costs the same to make as one micro windmill. In their video, you can clearly see the little windmill blades turning, but there's no sign that they've attached a turbine to it yet. A phone case could fit around 2,000 of the windmills which would be able to generate enough power to let you make an emergency call from a flat phone after only a few minutes of waving your phone through the air or placing it on a breezy windowsill or holding it out a window. Maybe you could be trickle charging the battery with your breath every time you're talking on the phone or you could have them built into hats and clothes so you could generate power while you walk or jog. You could fly them on kites from your balcony to charge batteries in your flat or apartment. More practical uses would include panels for the outside of buildings and urban and suburban environments, where the windmills would be too small to be an eyesore and too tiny to make annoying sounds. The windmills could also be placed along roads and train tracks to generate power from cars and trains without slowing them down or making them use more fuel. The Australian government has announced a review of wind power. Perhaps we can aim the micro windmills at Canberra and power the nation from the flow of political hot air. Car fuel from mushrooms. Professor Gary Strobel from Montana University, Bozeman, has developed a way to process the wood-eating fungus Ascocrine sarcoides, or jelly drop mushroom, into mycodiesel. The mushrooms feed on dead leaves. After a few weeks of processing, Professor Strobel was able to drive his motorbike using the mushroom diesel. The mushrooms could grow on agricultural waste to make cheap fuel that was also carbon neutral. If you ran a lawn mowing business, you could save costs by generating your own fuel from the lawn clippings. For crops to be made into the more common biofuel ethanol, they first have to have their cellulose broken down in a long production process. The cellulose is treated with enzymes called cellulases to make sugar, which microbes turn into alcohol. The fungi can make hydrocarbons directly from the cellulose, skipping the costly processing. 
Professor Strobel is collaborating with Yowie University and Sandia National Laboratories to commercialise the invention. His son, Dr. Scott Strobel, is leading the Yowie University team, determining the genes responsible for making the hydrocarbons that can be made into fuel. The Sandia team are using genetic sequencing to work out how changes in what you feed the fungus changes what kind of hydrocarbons the mushrooms make, so that the process can be optimised for making fuel. Traditional theory holds that crude oil, which makes diesel oil, is formed from the remains of dead plants and animals that have been exposed to heat and pressure for millions of years. However, if fungi like this are producing mushroom diesel all over the rainforest, then they may have contributed to the formation of the fossil fuels we're already burning. a technique to allow some people to correct their vision without glasses, contact lenses or surgery. Professor Helen Swarbrick at the School of Optometry and Vision Science at the University of New South Wales runs a research group called the Research in Orthokeratology or ROK group. I visited her and began by asking her what is orthokeratology? Orthokeratology is a contact lens-based modality uh, which is aimed to correct uh, refractive errors, particularly myopia. It uses specially designed uh, rigid contact lenses which you sleep in overnight. And over the course of the night, the lenses gently reshape the contour of the front surface of the cornea. And then in the morning, you take the contact lenses out and the cornea has been reshaped to a slightly different curvature which corrects the refractive error. Um, so there's no need to wear glasses or contact lenses during the day. The refractive error is uh, corrected and you see clearly um, just due to that corneal reshaping. So this is different to laser surgery and all other things since there's no surgery. Are there any risks associated with using this? Well, there has been um, some talk in the past about the risk of getting corneal infections associated with this modality. And indeed, um, if you talk to some people in the field, they will raise that as being the primary risk. In fact, recent research, particularly from the, from the United States, has shown that the risk of corneal infection with orthokeratology is no greater than the risk of getting a corneal infection with any other form of contact lens where, where the lenses are worn overnight. The main problem that we had was that uh, this modality was introduced very fast, particularly in some Asian countries, and maybe we can talk about the reasons for that a bit later, but without proper controls or proper hygiene. And as a result of this, there was a sudden epidemic of uh, micro microbial keratitis with this form of lens where particularly in China, Taiwan and Hong Kong. Um, we now understand why that happened and um, we have put in place recommendations which really do reduce the risk of microbial keratitis with this modality. Is the hygiene requirements of keeping your hands clean and sterilising the lenses, is it much different from regular contact lenses? No, it's actually very, very similar with other form, uh, co compared to soft contact lenses. Indeed, in actual fact, it's easier to keep these lenses clean because they're a rigid lens, so they don't soak up things from the environment. But the main factor that we found was a risk here was using tap water to rinse or to store the lenses. And if tap water is completely eliminated, 
eradicated from the care regimen with these lenses, the risks associated with orthokeratology drop right back down to the level with other contact lenses. And you can treat people with short-sightedness and long-sightedness? Most of orthokeratology lenses are used for the treatment of short-sightedness. That's the easiest thing to do, and we're very good at doing that, and we can certainly reliably correct people with up to about four diopters of myopia, sometimes a bit higher than that. It's a little bit more of a challenge to get things absolutely right for correcting long-sightedness, and the reason for this is that when we correct short-sightedness, what we're really doing is just flattening the front surface of the eye, whereas to correct long-sightedness, we need to steepen that up, and that's a little bit more of a challenge with this lens design. It can be done, but the degree to which we can steepen the front of the eye is very much more limited so there's not uh, so much usefulness in correcting long-sightedness and there's a very small amount of flattening that's happening too isn't it isn't on the order of millimeters well the way in which the cornea is flattened comes from our research where we demonstrated that what we are doing is thinning the epithelial layer in the center of the cornea and so this has the effect of overall flattening. Now the amount of thinning that we're talking about is in the order of about 20 microns that's 20 thousandth of a millimeter so it's a very very small amount of uh, change that we're causing. And I'd read that in some cases there's something they call staining that happens. Now staining is a phenomenon that we see when uh, surface cells of the cornea are in any way damaged and uh, the staining is actually staining with a dye called sodium fluorescein which is used routinely in optometric practice. Anybody who's been in to have their eyes tested has probably had this fluorescent orange dye uh, placed on the surface of the eye and it shows up any surface cells that are damaged. Now if orthokeratology lenses are fitted incorrectly for example if they're fitted too flat or if the patient wears the lens for too long or wears them in the incorrect circumstances then it is possible to damage some of these surface cells and that shows up as staining. Um, we would say probably that there's a slightly greater um, uh, frequency of staining with these lenses because they do actually change the front surface of the eye but rarely does staining in itself causes a great deal of concern unless there's a lot of staining or unless it's very persistent. And there's things you can do with orthokeratology that don't happen with the other corrections. So in children, there's some excitement that you can prevent the myopia getting worse. Yes, um, this has now been demonstrated by a whole lot of studies from all different parts of the world, including a study that we carried out here. And what we find is that if we put a child who is progressing in their myopia into um, orthokeratology lenses, so the lenses are just worn overnight, taken out during the day, in some way this stops the progression of myopia in many, many children. We still haven't got it 100% right. There's still a lot of research to be done but the efficacy of this approach is is very very high we're getting about 40 to 50 percent uh, reduction in the rate of myopia progression so this is very exciting and for this reason orthokeratology is being used increasingly particularly in Asia where there's such a high prevalence of myopia in children. Some people go for laser surgery in hopes of getting better than normal vision getting 20-40 vision 
um, some athletes and pilots and, and other people. Is that possible with orthokeratology lenses? Well, actually, 2040 is less than normal vision. 2020, or as we'd say here in Australia, 66 is uh, normal vision. And so better than normal vision means the denominator gets smaller so we're talking if we're wanting to go for supervision we're talking about 2010 we can certainly get 2020 2040 with orthokeratology in most cases and certainly some people seem to get better than 2020 or 66 vision with orthokeratology in fact we're doing some work right at the moment where we're looking to modify the back surface shape of these lenses in order to control uh, the optics of the eye the aberrations particularly of the eye to see if we can tweak the outcome to improve vision beyond the normal 2020 vision supervision supervision yes <laughs> and those of us that might need glasses for reading as well as for distance or a different lens or even just to take off our glasses obviously it's not quite attractive to get surgery or to keep in contact lenses is there an orthokeratology solution uh, we've done some work in which we've been looking at um, people who normally would not wear glasses for their long distance, but are starting to need some help to see up close. So that's most people when they're mid-40s onwards. And in those people who only require um, reading correction, uh, we've been using orthokeratology to steepen up the cornea in one eye only, and that becomes the reading eye. It's a, a situation we call monovision, and it's actually been used with conventional contact lenses very successfully for many many years so we've tried this out in our trial we've had um, up to eight eight people I believe who have completed a three-month trial and they just love this effect because they can go out without glasses they can read the newspaper they can read the labels in the supermarket but they can also see clearly in the distance so this is something that we're working on to um, improve this so that we could use it with people who maybe need correction for long distance plus they need reading correction uh, so watch the space <laughs> Who's it suitable for? Who's, what are the sort of people that will do well with orthokeratology that should look into this? Well, there's certain groups of people who find orthokeratology really, really very uh, positive. Of course, there's children and, and their anxious parents who want to stop their myopia from progressing. But even for children who do not get a myopia control effect, one of the beauties of orthokeratology is that during the day, glasses or contact lenses are not being worn. So the child goes to school, they're not having to worry about glasses, they're not having to worry about contact lenses. And particularly if they're active children playing a lot of sport, then there's no problems here with damaging the glasses glasses or losing contact lenses. For those of us, and, and not just children, but young adults in a society like Australia going to the beach, if any of you are contact lens wearers and go to the beach wearing your contact lenses, you know how painful it is when sand gets under the contact lenses. Orthokeratology means, of course, that you're not wearing the contact lenses, but you can still see clearly. So for people who have a very active, sports-oriented lifestyle, orthokeratology is almost an ideal solution. It certainly has a lot of attractions. Another group of people we find uh, really enjoy orthokeratology are those people who have worn soft lenses for many years but have problems towards the end of the day where the eyes start to feel very dry because the contact lenses dry out. Um, because a contact lens is not being worn in orthokeratology, this problem of end-of-day dryness is completely avoided. And so these people can get clear vision but without that discomfort towards the end of the day. 
does vision change over the day once you've taken the corrective lenses out as your eye starts to recover? Yes, one of the attractions I think of orthokeratology compared to, for example, with refractive surgery is that this is a reversible procedure. So if you decide that you just don't want to go with this anymore, you leave the lenses out and the eyes will go back to where they started from over a period of a week or two. But even during the day, there is some regression of effect. It's only very slight. And the way in which uh, people who fit these lenses deal with this is to fit the lenses so that they're slightly overcorrect first thing in the morning. And so there is a little regression of effect during the day, but not enough to cause the vision to be blurred by the end of the day. Um, So this takes into account that slight regression. So people would be safe to drive. Absolutely, that's the idea. And also they can go out and watch the movies at night. Terrific. So what's the future for orthokeratology? I think there's a number of directions and hopefully this will keep me in my research job for a while. The first is that um, in the area of myopia control for children, we're not getting 100% and we don't know why. And so we're doing a lot of research to understand why some children get such benefit and why other children do not. Uh, And uh, obviously our aim here is to um, uh, try and extend the efficacy of this so that all myopic children get some benefit. Going beyond that, I think one of the most exciting concepts is can we actually pick a child before they become myopic and in some way use orthokeratology or a similar strategy to stop them from becoming myopic in the the first place? In other words, get rid of myopia as a vision correction problem. So that's very exciting. And I think also that uh, um, learning how we can um, improve orthokeratology or corneal reshaping to take into account other refractive errors, not just myopia, not just reading vision, but also astigmatism and other refractive problems like that, so that we can uh, provide this as an an alternative modality to everybody who needs glasses uh, to correct their vision. If people want to try orthokeratology if they think it's for them where should they look Uh, many optometrists are fitting orthokeratology now and some of them are uh, absolutely excellent at getting good results uh, using this modality there is an association here in australia called the orthokeratology society of oceania which includes some of the southeast asian countries and uh, on their website they have a practitioner um, search engine Uh, so you can go to uh, www.osa.net.au and look up in your area and uh, it will give you a choice of a number of practitioners who are skilled in the art and practice of orthokeratology and you can then contact them and make an appointment to see if you're suitable. Thank you Professor Helen Swabrick. Thank you. Thank you. That was Professor Helen Swabrick. Head of the Research into Orthokeratology Research, ROK, Rock Group at the University of New South Wales. You can find out more about her research at optomtest.science.unsw.edu.au slash research slash ROK. And you can find an orthokeratology practitioner in Australia, New Zealand and Oceania at osa.net.au. And those URLs will be up on the episode page at diffusionradio.com. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. 
Happy Copyright Week! Copyright law was invented to reward creators for 14 years and to promote innovation and creativity. It's since been extended to 70 years after the death of the creator until after the creator's children will have been dead for years. The secret negotiations behind the shadowy Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement continue to 2014 without any consultation or participation from the citizens of the governments of Australia, the USA, Canada, Japan, New Zealand, Mexico, Peru, Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, Chile, and Singapore, making private but legally binding deals, including copyright. If we knew what was in the details, they would never get passed into law. To bypass democracy, they make secret international treaties and then come home and demand that we honour our international obligations by passing the unwanted laws. If globalisation means cheaper labour for employers, shouldn't it work both ways and allow importation of cheaper goods for consumers? The latest leaks suggest that the American government wants parallel importing stopped, which would mean that globalised companies that find the cheapest source of a product in the world and then import that locally to sell it, would be forced to shut their shops and sack their staff. American companies want to be able to control where you do your shopping to make sure you only buy their products at the recommended retail price and not a globalised competitive discounted price. According to the leaked documents, the Australian government will agree to that, despite the hundreds of extra dollars this will add to the prices of mobile phones, books, and electronic media. The other control over your consuming life desired by the American government on behalf of its corporations is what media you're allowed to watch. The Motion Picture Association of America wants to censor the world according to where you live. Yes, I'm talking about geo-blocking and region control. The American government is pushing to make it illegal for Australians to watch DVDs they've bought from Amazon or other places online, or even that they've bought while on holiday in America through region control codes. These codes prevent DVDs and Blu-ray media from playing on displayers that aren't in the USA. So your legally purchased movies will not be allowed to be played in Australia. The Australia tax, as it's known, already means that anything purchased from an American company from an iTunes song to a computer, will cost at least 50% more if you bought it from Australia. They've been able to plausibly plead the cost of shipping for electronic hardware. For purely digital media like movies, TV shows and music, there is no cost to shipping at all. So there's no possible justification for the price hike. If I travel the world and buy DVDs I can't buy in Australia, or I find them online but not in the shops, then it should be legal for me to watch them at home on my region-free DVD player. When you buy a DVD or Blu-ray player right now in Australia, you need to find out if it will play the movies you've bought overseas. Best way of doing that is bringing an American-bought DVD to the shop with you so you can test it. Some players manufactured in Asia can be made region-free by punching the right code sequence into the remote control. Brands that sell movies and music themselves, like Sony, Don't offer that option, so it pays to do your research or face being unable to play your DVD collection. The leak suggests that the Australian government is currently holding out, criminalising getting around technological protection, but this government is known for giving in to all things American. The outgoing Labor government 
put advice on its websites on how Australians could use private virtual networks to bypass the geographical blocking of online content by IP address. Australians are censored by American corporations from even streaming much free video content on the internet. Your IP address tells the web server which country you're in, and American servers have software blocking Australians. So we can't watch The Daily Show, or Hulu, or many YouTube videos because we can be identified as Australians. If they can't be bothered to show us targeted adverts, then they don't want us watching their free videos. The virtual private networks will show your IP address as coming from the USA, so you can watch the free video streams for a monthly fee. This also works to make prices for digital downloads be charged to you at American rates without the Australia tax. There are also proxy add-ons and extensions for browsers that can help you pass as an American online, so you can't be discriminated against and censored for being a foreigner. The Electronic Frontiers Foundation has put out a list of six principles for copyright policy. Copyright policy must be set through participatory, democratic and transparent processes, not secret deals. The public domain is our cultural commons and a public trust. It's the resource upon which all creativity is built. Policy should not diminish the public domain. The results of publicly funded research should be made freely available to the public online to be fully used by anyone, anywhere, anytime. You bought it, you own it. And copyright policy shouldn't take away your freedom to tinker with it. Repair it, recycle it, use it on any device, lend it, give it away or resell it. Fair use. To promote creativity and innovation, policy must allow unexpected and innovative uses of content. A free and open internet is essential for new business models, new artists and writers, activism and free speech, none of which should be sacrificed in the name of copyright enforcement. Find out more at eff.org slash copyright week. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Like our Facebook page and leave a comment. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion needs funding outside of the Bank of Ian. Please contact me at science at diffusionradio.com if you'd like to sponsor the show, to suggest a business model, help with applying for grants, or look for the donate button on diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.